Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Hello, everyone. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the number one audiobook service online today. For just $14.95 a month, you get access to hundreds of thousands of titles, plus thousands of Audible originals you can't get anywhere else. Each month, you get two of those originals and one credit that you can use on any title. You can start a free 30-day trial and support the show by going to audibletrial.com slash historyofpersia. As usual, I've got a recommendation for you if you choose to sign up, or if you have already. Today, it's The Parthian by Peter Darman. This is historical fiction following the young prince Pecorus of Hatra, a major city in Mesopotamia during the time of the Parthian Empire. After Rome invades Parthian territory... Pecorus is sent to exact Parthian vengeance only to be captured and enslaved. But all is not lost. It's only the first step on a journey that sends Pecorus all over the Roman and Parthian worlds. I've only just started this one myself, but I'm really enjoying it so far, and it's only the first book of 13 in the Parthian Chronicles. So if that piques your interest, check it out and sign up at audibletrial.com slash historyofpersia today.
Welcome to the History of Persia, Episode 27, The Grand Tour, Part 2. When we left off the narrative in 510 BCE, Darius the Great was secure in his position as Great King, and had brought the Persian Empire to its greatest geographic extent. In the last episode, I launched our world tour, heading east out of Parsa and traveling counterclockwise through the eastern provinces of the empire. I covered everything east of Parsa itself and media. Today we turn west, once again following Ian Mladyov's map of Achaemenid administrative divisions, which is still posted on the website historyofpersiapodcast.com. Rather than heading out of Parsa, we're departing from Media today, heading west into the newly established territory of Armenia. Well, relatively newly established. Armenia was the name of the region that is now eastern Turkey and the western Caucasus Mountains, at least by the time of the Behistun inscription when Darius first came to power. The new name was probably coming into use for the first time when Cyrus the Great first came into his own power, but not too long before then that same region was known as Urartu. I discussed this a little bit back in episode 23 and episode 1. Through most of the early Iron Age, Urartu was the northern rival of Assyria, but it was crushed in 714 BCE and gradually declined until it fell to foreign invasion out of the Caucasus around 590 BCE. Those foreign invaders were the people known as Armenians. Their culture and language gradually supplanted that of Urartu, and before long the people of their land were Armenians. When going through the Behistun inscription, I pointed out that some of the Armenians were still using old Urartian names, but others were using names derived from the ancient Armenian language. But this process was clearly still ongoing well into the Achaemenid period, because Herodotus, writing almost 60 years after the Behistun inscription, still noted that the Urartians were a tribe or ethnic group within Armenia. In fact, Herodotus mentions 10 different ethnicities or subgroups in Armenia, including the Urartians and Armenians themselves, probably representing a combination of groups within those two main identities as well as various tribes that had migrated through Armenia over the preceding centuries. One interesting group, featured prominently in Xenophon's Anabasis, are the Kardikoi. These were a group of mountain dwellers that resisted Achaemenid rule north of the Tigris River, in the southern part of the Armenian satrapy. They are probably the same people called Gordi by Herodotus, and possibly connected to the city of Gordian and its famous knot encountered by Alexander the Great. For a very long time, it has been theorized that these Kardikoi were the ancestors of the modern Kurds. The idea fits. The names are linguistically similar, and they both occupy the same region of southeast Anatolia. And it's generally understood that the Kurds are one of the oldest ethnic groups in that region. The Kurds themselves are an Iranian ethnic group. Their language and non-Islamic religious traditions are steeped in ancient Iranian heritage. And some Kurds have even claimed descent from the Medes, predating even the Achaemenids. More recently, some scholars have cast doubt on all of those supposed relationships, on the basis that there is very little proof. However, I'd like to offer the counterpoint that the name Kurds has been traced far back into history, and I mean really, really far into history. Some scholars have connected it to the ancient Sumerian land of Karda, which was supposed to be in roughly the same region as modern western Kurdistan, which places that name in use sometime around 3000 BC. 
so that's long before there were any Iranian peoples in the region to be known as Kurds. In fact, it's long before there were any Iranian peoples at all. So even if the Kardakoi themselves weren't an Iranian people, and weren't the cultural or genetic ancestors of the modern Kurds, then they were the people who were using that geographical name during the time of the Achaemenid Empire. Whether it was Karda, Kardakoi, Gordi, or Kurds, the region that we now call Kurdistan has held that name for a very long time, regardless of the actual inhabitants. And even if it wasn't the Medes themselves, the Achaemenid period is when the Aaronic peoples first started settling in that region, so if we're looking for the earliest ancestors of the Kurds, it's not a bad time to start. But enough of that. Back to the satrapy of Armenia. It was bordered in the west by the upcoming province of Cappadocia along the Euphrates River, and in the east it was bordered by Media, marked approximately by Lake Ermia in modern Iran, as well as the Araxes River. The southern border with the satrapy of Assyria was also marked by the Euphrates in the west and Lake Ermia in the east, with the Tigris marking the boundary in between. The northern boundary of Armenia was vague. In theory, it probably reached to the far side of the Caucasus mountain range, but the Achaemenids probably didn't have... But the Achaemenids really didn't have much real control over the mountains, though at least some of the cities and peoples there paid tribute and sent gifts of either supplies or people to the great kings. One feature of northern Armenia probably indicates how and when it was conquered. Some modern scholars have suggested that it was part of the Median Empire when Cyrus took over. Others say Cyrus conquered the region between taking over Media and going to war with Lydia. I like to point out that it might just be both. Armenia slash Urartu could have seceded when Cyrus deposed Astyages. Regardless, it seems Cyrus did march deep into Armenia, or at least later generations believed that he did. The Kura River, running from modern Turkey through Georgia and Azerbaijan and into the Caspian Sea, was known as the Kiros or Cyrus River in antiquity, and it may be that that river marked the original northern boundary of Persian Armenia. Now this is already a lot more than I could say about almost anywhere we discussed last time, but I haven't even touched on the government and taxes yet. In broad terms, Armenia, like Parthia in the last episode, was part of the Median Great Satrapy. Armenia, like all of the Achaemenid provinces, was a tax district above all else. Herodotus asserts that their tribute was paid in silver, which was certainly possible in such a mineral-rich area, but Strabo suggests that they sent 20,000 colts, young horses, to the kings of kings each year. Herodotus is the older source, and Strabo is more in keeping with the usual in-kind style of taxation that Persian sources suggest, so both have merits. If nothing else, Strabo tells us that the Armenians were notable for their horse breeding, which was essential to maintaining the powerful cavalry of the Persian army. The actual government structure of Armenia is a thing of contrasts. On one hand, every Greek source that ever passed through the region agreed that they were a tribal society. Herodotus, Xenophon, Theseus, Ptolemy, etc. all assert that the Armenians were a conglomeration of local tribes that often quarreled with one another and their Persian tax masters. In general, the average Armenian was a poor herdsman, mostly herding cattle from one pasture to the next. To offset the chaos and disorganization of the Armenians themselves, the whole region was heavily occupied, 
with Persian garrisons of troops from Persia and the rest of the empire in towns dotting the Armenian landscape, with some Greek cities like Trapezus on the Black Sea coast in the north paying tribute or taxes to the Armenian satrap. Taxes from the Greeks and Armenians ensured that the Persian garrison towns were well supplied and lived in relative luxury. All of this was organized from the city of Thaspa, or Tushba, on the southeastern side of Lake Van. Thaspa was a very old city. It had served as a fortress under the Arartians in the 800s BCE, but in the late 500s it had become the satraps' capital in Armenia. The Armenian satraps are an interesting case. It seems that they started as foreign appointees sent by the king to rule Armenia in his name, but over time it became a hereditary office passing from father to son by default, with little interference from the king of Persia himself. So it becomes hard to tell if we should consider them local kings acting as vassals, or appointed governors. It might be that they were vassals until the rebellion in their Tory was put down by Darius at the beginning of his reign, at which point he made them a full province, but kept the Arontid kings in charge. Though I suppose it doesn't actually make much of a difference so long as they kept paying taxes and tribute. The other problem is that the beginning of the dynasty. The other problem is that the beginning of the first dynasty of Armenian kings is semi-legendary. They are first described by Xenophon in his Cyropedia, which is closer to historical fiction than actual history and leans heavily on local folklore. According to Xenophon, the dynasty was founded when Astyages appointed Arantes Sakavakyats to be the local median governor of Armenia. Arantes was supposedly Astyages' grandson through a daughter married to an Armenian nobleman, much like Cyrus the Great himself was supposedly Astyages' grandson in Persia under similar circumstances. Arantes held that position for only a decade before dying around 560, when the throne passed to his son Tigranes, or just Tigran in Armenian. It was Tigranes who willingly joined his forces with Cyrus the Great after the defeat of Astyages, according to Xenophon. Thereafter, the Persian kings respected the position of their distant cousins in Armenia, called the Arontid dynasty, and they actually outlasted the Achaemenids by several centuries. There are a couple problems with that story. First, the parallel between Arontes and Cyrus the Great seems like a great propaganda for a dynasty trying to survive in the Persian Empire, and the supposed relationship to the great kings doesn't hurt. The other thing is that the story seems to conflict with later Arontid inscriptions that traced their lineage back to an Orontes who lived around 400 BC, and traced his ancestors back to Darius the Great himself. Both lineages are probably a little legendary, and both lend Achaemenid legitimacy to the Orontids. It's just a matter of who's in charge. It might make more sense that they only came to power after Darius reconquered Armenia, but then we are left with no idea of who was in charge for the first 150 years of Achaemenid power there. I'll keep coming back to these Armenian kings, though, because their descendants will dominate the politics of this crucial region, not just through the Achaemenid period, but for almost 200 years after they fall. Now it's time to continue our westward journey, crossing the Euphrates and entering Cappadocia, a region which still uses that name today and formed the center of Achaemenid Anatolia, though the Persians called it Captatuka. Ancient Cappadocia, was much larger than the modern region, dominating almost all of Anatolia between the Euphrates and Hollis rivers. Cappadocia had seen many of the same migrating and occupying peoples as Armenia, 
and was only slightly more settled. Its history stretches even further back, all the way to the late Bronze Age when it was the homeland of the Hittite Empire, who also coincidentally featured heavily in this month's Patreon bonus episode. The Cappadocians themselves were probably culturally pretty similar to the Lydians on their western border. Both groups were primarily descended from Phrygians, who had migrated through Anatolia during the early Iron Age about 400 years ago in our narrative. Though Herodotus also mentions a colony of Thracians living in Cappadocia, and there were a few Greek cities along the Black Sea. Until fairly recently, Cappadocia had been ruled by local vassal kings, but under Darius, it was reorganized as an official tax-paying province with an appointed satrap called Area Romnes. This is the same Area Romnes who defended Cappadocia from a raid by Scythians who had sailed across the Black Sea around 513 or 514 BCE. Herodotus depicts the satrapy as a bit wealthier than Armenia, which makes sense given that they had even more access to the mineral wealth and metal wealth of central Anatolia. Xenophon and Herodotus both give the impression that Cappadocia was very decentralized, though, with some large towns like the temple complex of Castabola or the Greek city of Sinope functioning almost autonomously. Despite this, or probably because of it, there were a large number of Persian garrisons to help enforce the satrap or great king's power. The local capital seems to have moved around over time. Both the Greek city of Sinope and the ancient Hittite city of Mazaka hosted the satrap at different times, possibly corresponding to which of the two or three sub-satraps had seniority. At some point, possibly under Darius, possibly later, Cappadocia was divided into a few administrative subdivisions. Early on, it was split north and south into Cappadocia on the Pontus, the northern half close to the Black or Pontic Sea, and Cappadocia on the Taurus, the southern half that bordered the Taurus Mountains. Later on, the northwestern corner, called Paphlagonia, became its own administrative unit. If we continue our tour from there, still heading west, we pass from Paphlagonia into Lydia, the former kingdom of Croesus, now known as Sparta by the Persians. Now, for the last dozen or so episodes, I've been referring to this territory by its Persian name to help differentiate it from the old independent kingdom. But now it's time to revert to its old name, which is what the Greeks always used and what scholars still tend to use today. We're far enough away from an independent Lydian kingdom that I don't think it'll be confusing anymore, and ironically, I'm making this transition because we're rapidly approaching a lot of interaction with the Greeks, and the subtle difference between Sparta and Sparta isn't something I want to deal with. Once we enter Lydia, we're officially in the Greek world. Despite Persian occupation and Phrygian heritage, Lydia was very clearly Hellenized by the time of Cyrus the Great, and continued Persian presence had done very little to halt that. The north, west, and most of the southern coast were dotted with Greek cities anyway. Lydia marks the first satrapy where I really can't give you all of the information that exists about it. Well, I could, but it wouldn't be at all practical. As part of the Greek world, it's very well documented, or at least its Greek cities are. Plus, it's a huge satrapy. Not only were its satraps the rulers of the great satrapy that also included Cappadocia, but at times, the Lydian satrapy just included all of the empire's European possessions outright, as shown on Ian Mladyov's map. Now, I'm not totally sure I buy that, because Thrace is often listed separately, but then again, so are the Greeks, and they definitely reported to the satrap who ruled from Sardis, 
the old Lydian capital city. We've actually talked about the narrative history that's been happening here on and off since it was conquered, so I won't go through that again here, nor will I go through all of the well-documented Greek cities. I'll leave that to Ryan Stitt and the History of Ancient Greece podcast. In fact, I won't even cover the big events under Darius in this episode, because it's literally the next major event when I go back to the narrative. What I will say is that after that event, the Ionian Revolt, Persian and Iranian presence in the region increased significantly and started persifying the culture inland. They didn't make a dent in the actual Greek cities, but over the latter half of Darius's reign and the reigns of his successors, many Lydian or Lydian Greek gods took on Iranian elements and Iranian deities started to be worshipped in Lydian temples. I'll work through most of the subdivisions starting in the southeast and go clockwise-ish from there. Most of Lydia was covered by a region Xenophon called Greater Phrygia. This was the inland region that was probably less Hellenized and more culturally Phrygian, but had still been ruled by the Lydians for several centuries at this point. The southern part was more mountainous, while the north had flatlands and river plains better suited to agriculture. In the southwest, the Taurus Mountains formed one border, and in the north, Greater Phrygia came to an end somewhere south of Gordian. On the southwest, Greater Phrygia split the southern coast of Anatolia with the next minor region, Caria. Caria is an interesting combination of local Anatolian herdsmen and farmers further inland, speaking a language called Carian, which was related to the ancient languages that originated in the region. Then there were the predominantly Doric Greek cities on the coast, including Halicarnassus, home of Herodotus, and Cnidus, home of Theseus as well as some major islands like Rhodes. Caria can be further divided into the northwestern section, which I just described, and the territory of Lycia, or Lucia, in its ancient Greek pronunciation. We last visited Lycia when it was brutally conquered by the general Harpagus on behalf of Cyrus the Great in episode 6. According to Herodotus, almost the entire population of the major city of Xanthos died, this is probably greatly exaggerated, as Xanthos was still the regional capital during Darius's time. The Lycians were another Anatolian people like the Carians, speaking their own Lucian language with their own local culture, but they were greatly influenced by their Greek neighbors nonetheless. Even though they are lumped in with Caria on the map, Lycia was functionally an autonomous kingdom and was ruled by its own local dynasty of kings, who traded with the other states independently and minted their own coinage. They just paid tribute to the Achaemenid king and sent ships with the Persian navy. Meanwhile, Caria itself was ruled by a different hereditary line, the Greek tyrants from Halicarnassus of the Ligdamid dynasty. The Ligdamid tyrants were allowed to govern- I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. 
They focus on fast language acquisition without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership all 25 languages for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Their territory in the Greek city-state style, but reported to the Persian satrap at Sardis. Speaking of Sardis, if we travel north out of Caria, we enter the core of Lydia, the region surrounding the capital. Really, this region had changed very little under the Achaemenids, aside from an increased Persian influence with Persian nobles ruling from the city. That and a new palace had been built or renovated to accommodate the tastes of the new satraps. Otherwise, they continued to mint the official coinage, refine electrum into gold and silver, and collect tribute from the rest of Lydia. Technically, the satrap in Sardis was also directly in charge of the Ionian Greek cities on the coast, and many of the Aegean islands that had pledged themselves to the great kings. But practically, all of those Greek places were allowed to manage their own affairs. Many of them were ruled by local tyrants or oligarchs and made sure to pay their taxes. They weren't quite independent like Lycia, but they often functioned that way, and when we resume the narrative, that independent streak is going to get the Ionians into a lot of trouble. Heading north once again, we enter into Hellespontine Phrygia, the strip of northwest Anatolia that runs along the strait separating Europe from Asia. In antiquity, that was known as the Hellespont, though today it is the Dardanelles. Hellespontine Phrygia ran from there along the Sea of Marmara and encompassed the region known as Bithynia along the southwest shore of the Black Sea. It included the other famous strait between Europe and Asia, the Bosporus, and the minor Greek city that straddled it, Byzantion. Under the Taisbid kings, Hellespontine Phrygia had been an independent satrapy, but during the Lydian satrap Oroitus's bid for independence, he conquered it. Apparently, Darius chose to keep them tied together legally even after Oroitus had been assassinated. Still within the territory that ultimately reported to Sardis most of the time, we cross the Hellespont and enter into Europe. Specifically, we are now in Thrace, called Scudra by the Persians. This is one of Darius's newest acquisitions, conquered by Megabazos in the late 510s after Darius returned to Persia following his failed campaign against the Scythians. The southern border of Thrace was the Mediterranean, with Byzantium in the east and Macedon in the west. It didn't extend very far north, and that border was not well defined, but the Danube River probably served that purpose in the east. The coastline was much like Anatolia, dotted by Greek colony cities, all with their own ties back to other cities on the Greek mainland. The non-Greek parts of Thrace were not as heavily urbanized as the Greek world, but the Thracians did have their own cities, and it was heavily populated. 
Herodotus erroneously believed that it was the second most populous country in the world, second only to India. On top of that, it was also filled with gold mines. Fortunately for the Persians, they had one very exploitable weakness. I discussed it a bit back in episode 24. They were heavily divided. The various Thracian tribes or petty kingdoms squabbled so much between themselves that they never posed a serious threat to the Persian occupation. To the northeast of Thrace, I should give an honorable mention to the Saka Paradraia, the Saka across the sea, sometimes called Scythians. These were the horse nomads that Darius chased deep into the steppe with no success, but he continued to claim them as a conquered people for the rest of his life. Finally, rounding out the territory that reported to the satrap of Lydia, we have Macedon. I won't completely rehash what I talked about back in episode 24, but this was the last territory conquered under Darius. It was another gold-rich territory with high mountains surrounding a fertile plain between two rivers. That plain supported farms, livestock, and horse herds that enabled a Macedonian cavalry tradition not seen in the rest of Greece. Its coast was too flat to support very many ports, but between the metal and agriculture, they had plenty to trade. The local kings, the same Argiad family that would one day spawn Alexander the Great, ruled autonomously with Persian supervision to make sure that they paid their tribute and provided troops. Situated just north of the famous Mount Olympus, and speaking their own dialect of Greek, the Macedonians formed the new frontier of the Persian Empire. South of Macedon, we're going to skip over the chaotic mess of thousands of small, independent city-states known as Greece. At this point, they were outside of the Persian Empire and constantly warred among themselves. Obviously, they are of little concern and could never pose any sort of threat to such a great empire. I'm sure we'll have them conquered in no time. So, we sail past these Greeks, maybe making a few stops to trade along the way. Even if they were a chaotic rabble, they had some impressive artisans and produced the best olive oil and some very fine wines. But now we must go to the northwest corner of Africa, and just to keep our tour flowing smoothly, let's start in Libya. To the Persians, this mostly meant the strip of coast between the city of Cyrene or Kurene and Egypt. So what do we find here in Libya? More Greeks, of course. The western edge of Libya was the Greek city of Esperus, which is near modern Benghazi. Esperus was the westmost city in the region known as Cyrenaica. Cyrenaica was the region surrounding the Greek colony city of Cyrene, which was the leading city of five Greek cities in the region, sometimes called the Cyrenaean Pentapolis. In reality, Persian control was isolated to the region between these cities, with Esperus in the west and Apollonia in the east which was really just a port for Cyrene itself. The other cities were Barca and Tocaria. Cyrene was the largest and wealthiest, and its king ruled all five cities in Cyrenaica. The Cyrenaeans had paid tribute to Cambyses willingly. In episode 24, I discussed how they were conquered outright by the satrap of Egypt in the 510s BCE, and became a full province under Darius. They were not particularly more wealthy than other major trade hubs around the Mediterranean, but they were some important exporters of a plant called silphium, which was considered an important seasoning and medicinal herb for abortions in the ancient world. In fact, it was so in demand that it was over-harvested and went extinct in the early Roman period. Beyond the Pentapolis, to the south and east, I think Ian Mladyov's map exaggerates a bit. 
In reality, the Persians barely had any control outside of Cyrenaica, unless the local garrisons or Greeks managed to defeat the native Libyan Berbers and demand tribute for a short period. And they probably never extended their power very far into the desert unless it was a road to an oasis. Despite being Greek, we have very few historical records of Achaemenid Libya, so it's time to turn east again and start our journey back toward Persia. If you're following along on the map I posted on the website, you'll see a city called Ammonion just floating down in the desert on the southeastern edge of Libya. This site is better known as the Siwa Oasis, called Ammonion in some Greek sources because it was home to the famed oracle of the Egyptian god Amun. I have to admit, this one confuses me. Culturally and religiously, Siwa was very clearly associated with Egypt, and yet a couple of my modern sources flatly say that it was governed by Libya in the Achaemenid period, but with very little explanation. During the revolt against Darius from 522 to 518 BCE, the Egyptian rebels were concentrated in Siwa and other similar oases, so again, that's Egyptian. I don't quite get it, and it's very possible that it was usually semi-independent because it was so hard to reach, and left that way so long as it didn't cause trouble for the Persians. If we head east from the Siwa oasis, we'll travel for a long time through empty desert, but as we get closer to the Nile River, we start seeing signs of life again. It's then that we've really entered Egypt, which the Persians actually called Mudraya. Egypt is a massive, monumental topic, not so much deserving its own episode, but its own podcast. Fortunately, that podcast actually exists, and it's Dominic Perry's History of Egypt. Currently, he's covering the Egyptian New Kingdom about a thousand years before our narrative, which sounds like he's got a long way to go, because he does, but he's more than halfway there. Egypt's recorded history begins more than 5,000 years ago, so 1500 BC ain't bad. So what do we find in Egypt? More Greeks! Okay, that's hardly the focus of covering Egypt today, but it's worth pointing out. There were many Greek merchants and mercenaries all over Egypt, especially on the coast. But also, there was an actual Greek colony city founded during the Greek Dark Age at Nocratis, on the western side of the Nile Delta. This, finally, rounds out all of our Greek colony cities on our tour. I've actually had to follow the developments of Egypt pretty thoroughly since episode 1, since they were the second great power in the region before Cambyses conquered them. If you want to follow my own mini-history of Egypt in the context of our narrative, I believe the episodes to revisit are 1, 3, 16, 17, and 23. For this episode, I'll try and keep it relatively brief. The Persian period was the height of the Egyptian Late Period. The Late Period was the time beginning in the early Iron Age when Egypt gradually ceased to be a world power, it was still a major player in the region, but was occupied repeatedly by its neighbors and was rarely able to intervene successfully beyond its borders. The Persians, after this first conquest of Egypt, are known in Egyptology as the 27th Dynasty, following the convention established by an Egyptian priest called Manetho in the 3rd century BCE. Egypt was still extremely wealthy, particularly as a key exporter of grain in the Mediterranean. According to Herodotus, it was the second wealthiest, or at least the second highest tax burden, in the empire behind India, but it was never able to recapture the grandiose monument and temple building of previous eras. Between that, foreign rulers who were rarely present, and an increased reliance on papyrus documents for record-keeping instead of inscribed clay or stone, 
it's a low point for Egyptian records available to modern scholars. It's also pretty unremarkable in terms of Egyptian culture. There was very little change to local traditions under the Persians. Religion and artwork both continued with the styles and rituals that went back almost 2,000 years at that point. Cambyses didn't have much time after conquering it to leave an additional mark on the new satrapy. But once Darius re-established Persian control, he actually did institute a few changes, or at least cleaned up the situation in the wake of not only Cambyses' conquests, but several centuries of decline. Darius ordered Egyptian scholars to compile an official law code of Egypt's local laws. It's not that there had previously been no official code, but that the actual laws in use at the time didn't necessarily reflect the older written records. This is just something that happened periodically in many ancient societies. Keeping law books up to date was rarely a priority, and occasionally a new king would have scholars sit down and clean up the mess. Darius also built more new temples than any king had in recent years. I mentioned in episode 23 that he built many of them in oases on the western fringes of Egyptian territory to exert Persian influence over the areas that had previously been in rebellion. The temples were not limited to the west. Many were also built or renovated in Darius's name in the major cities along the Nile. Darius also founded the construction of at least one new canal between the Great Bitter Lake on the western edge of the Sinai Peninsula and the Red Sea, making roughly the same connection as the southern third of the modern Suez Canal. Some Greek sources also report that he had a canal built to connect the Nile itself to the sea further south, but these stories may have been confused about the northern canal or refer to a project that was never actually completed. These many building projects also enabled the training of many Egyptian artists and artisans who were then taken or hired by the Persians and brought east to work on Darius's new building projects in Persia itself. Despite Darius's best efforts to bring Persian control and influence to Egypt, it was still always able to act more independently than other provinces. Part of this was surely geographical. The Sinai Desert made it very hard to interact with Egypt overland, Part of it was also historical and cultural. Egypt's history as a powerful independent kingdom stretched back 2,000 years before the Persians even existed as a minor mountain tribe, and the idea of Egypt as its own free entity never really faded under the Persians. We will see many rebellions in Egypt over the course of the podcast. In fact, we've already seen two. First, just after Cambyses was finished conquering the kingdom, while Cambyses was returning from his campaign in Nubia, the Egyptians revolted against their conquerors and were brutally resubjugated. Then again, when Darius took the throne barely a year later, the rogue pharaoh Petubestet led a revolt that lasted for another four years. Even when it was nominally under Persian control, Egypt always had the potential to make a bid for independence. Aryandes, the first satrap of Egypt installed by Cambyses unilaterally invaded Libya, forcing Darius to support the subjugation of Cyrenaica. Then, to jump just a little bit ahead of our narrative, he started acting even more independently around 497 BCE. A grand monument to Darius was built in Egypt, probably in the capital at Memphis, so Aryandes commissioned a monument to himself that would rival the statue of the king. Then, Ariandes started minting his own coinage, independent of the newly created Persian Daric. Minting his own money was the straw that broke the camel's back in this case. It was one too many independent actions by Ariandes, and Darius accused him of rebellion. 
he was executed and replaced as satrap of Egypt by another Persian named Ferendates, who happened to be the son of Megabazos, the recent conqueror of Thrace and Macedon. Whether Aryandes or Ferendates, the Egyptian satrap made his capital in Memphis, a major city on the Nile River that had been an on-and-off capital city for Egypt since it became Egypt's first royal capital around 3100 BCE. Memphis also marked the southern edge of the region known as Lower Egypt. Contrary to modern maps, Lower Egypt was the northern part, deriving its name because the Egyptians viewed the Nile as flowing from high to low. Therefore, the rest of Egypt, south of Memphis, was Upper Egypt. If we continue following the Nile south, we eventually come to a series of rapids called the First Cataract of the Nile. Beyond that, we are in Nubia, which the Greeks called Ethiopia and the Persians called Kushia. Nubia is just the name that modern scholars have settled on out of the many names that modern Sudan went by in the ancient world. Frankly, we know nothing about a Cayman in Nubia. It may be that it was never actually ruled by the Persians at all and just paid tribute in the decades after Cambyses invaded. If it did exist, it was just a buffer state between Achaemenid Egypt and the Kushite kingdom to the south. It would have stretched, at most, to the second cataract of the Nile, and functioned as an extension of Egypt. The only reason it isn't considered part of the Egyptian satrapy is that it seems to be listed separately from Egypt when the great kings listed all of the lands under their control. The fourth and final satrapy that would have comprised the great satrapy based in Egypt is found when we turn northeast and cross the Red Sea. From Nubia, we pass on to Arabia. Once again, this doesn't mean exactly the same thing that it would mean today. Achaemenid Arabia is roughly the same as the later Roman province of Arabia Petraea, the northwestern corner of the Arabian Desert. Much like Libya, the map distorts the reality here. Real Persian control would have been isolated to the oases and coastal towns, with independent tribes and empty regions filling in the gaps. The funny thing is, no Persian king ever actually claimed to conquer the Arabs, and no Persian king was ever associated with that conquest by the Greeks. However, most of the Persian kings claimed Arabia as their own. So the best theory anyone has is that this basically corresponds to the stretch of Arabia conquered by the Babylonian king Nabonidus, stretching out to the oasis cities of Tema and Dumaitha, and it was inherited by Cyrus as part of the Babylonian Empire when he took the city in 539. Like Nubia, Achaemenid Arabia was probably a temporary province at best, and seems to have slipped away from Achaemenid tribute and taxes kind of early on. Beyond that, we don't really have any information about how it was governed or if it even had any sort of central government, rather than just local tribute payers in the forms of cities and tribes. Turning north from Arabia, we enter our second to last province that I have planned for today. This is Assyria, called Athura in Old Persian. When Cyrus the Great conquered the Babylonian Empire, he split it into two components, Babylonia, the heartland on the southeastern side of the Euphrates River, and the Trans-Euphrates, stretching from the river to the Mediterranean. Later in Cyrus's reign, he recombined the whole territory of the Babylonian Empire into one satrapy. Under Darius, the massive, unwieldy territory was split once again, with the Trans-Euphrates province re-established as the revived territory of Assyria, under the Persian banner. It was not the largest province, 
but it was probably the most complex. Persian Assyria includes Phoenicia, Judea, Syria, the original Assyrians, the semi-autonomous kingdom of Cilicia, and other parts of central Mesopotamia. And for that reason, I'm cutting this episode off here. It's an absolutely massive piece of the empire with way too many parts that all need separate attention because they're all historically important on their own, regardless of the Achaemenid period. So I'm going to adjust course just a little bit and merge Babylonia and Assyria with the capital provinces for one final tour episode in two weeks. If I tried to keep going today, this would be an hour at least, so for now, we pause, and when I come back, we will resume our tour on the shores of the Dead Sea. In the meantime, if you want more information about the podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com, where I've posted maps, the Achaemenid family tree, up to the children of Darius, my bibliography, and the support page for the podcast. On the support page, you'll find things like links to Patreon and Amazon affiliate things, or all of the books I've suggested from Audible recently, and multiple other links that you can use to support the show. If you don't have the ability to provide a financial support right now, the best way that anybody can support is to share the show on social media, tell your friends, on Facebook, it's History of Persia Podcast, same for Instagram, and on Twitter, it's just at History of Persia. Also, leave reviews on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever your favorite podcast service is. It's always great to get feedback. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to this episode of The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. 
For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.